Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife. This is Wudo and Megan Kashup. We are currently at the APSA 50th anniversary meeting, and we have the distinct honor of sitting with Dr. Henri Ford. Dr. Ford is a professor of surgery and dean of the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine. He earned a Bachelor of Arts from Princeton University, followed by his MD from Harvard Medical School. He subsequently completed his general surgery residency at the New York Hospital, followed by a pediatric surgery fellowship at the Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh. He also earned a master's in healthcare administration from the USC uh, in 2009. Dr. Ford, among other numerous titles and honors, is the immediate past president of the American Pediatric Surgical Association, as well as an honorary fellow of the Royal College of Surgeons in England, the highest award. Welcome, Dr. Ford. Well, thank you. It's really an honor for me to be able to um, talk to you this morning and to share a little bit about um, my path into leadership uh, in American surgery. Um, my hope is that uh, this discussion, uh, this narrative will uh, hopefully um, uh, inspire others and and get them to understand that um, life is about trying to make a big dif- the biggest difference possible. And if you continue to focus on the right uh, objectives, uh, there's truly nothing that you can, uh, you cannot accomplish. Um, so uh, let's um, start. I, I was born in Haiti, and uh, just before my 14th birthday, my family uh, emigrated down to the United States. Um, now, this was for a multiplicity of reasons, but we'll, we'll, we'll skip them. It was a little bit of a... Um, uh, shock to uh, leave Port-au-Prince to end up in, in Brooklyn, um, not speaking English. Um, so the adjustment was uh, uh, quite formidable. But uh, nonetheless, I knew that uh, failure was not an option, as my uh, father always uh, uh, told us. And so I had to quickly make some adjustments uh, to learn the English language. And despite some of its uh, challenges, I, I recall um, um, struggling, uh, trying to read The Outsiders. And, and, and during uh, my English class, uh, everyone had to read a paragraph. And, and every time they got up to me, uh, the entire class started laughing because they knew I was about to butcher the English language. And um, but perhaps one of the important uh, take-home messages is that I had a very good and encouraging um, teacher, um, which in many ways was an early mentor, if not sponsor. Uh, his name was Mr. Stewart. And he said, um, do not listen to them. Just ignore them. Just keep trying. Just keep trying. Uh, and, and, and truly, that's a very key principle because uh, later on, you know, you say, well, when life gives you a lemon, you make the best lemonade you can. Um, so I kept trying. And um, and then during the summer, I enrolled in 
an English um, enrichment course um, where you were, we had to read a bunch of books and and um, and, and actually just had to uh, act in a Shakespeare play. Uh, so so I had to have a very stiff learning curve and and and, and got really much more comfortable with um, you know, the English language and especially spoken language. Uh, so much so that uh, by the time I returned to uh, school as a sophomore, um, yeah, my English was um, great. I, I did as well in English as I was doing in the sciences, ended up in honors English and so on and so forth. And 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 then the rest is really history. Um, um, I was blessed to be able to get a full scholarship to, to Princeton, where, um, again, I continued to um, you know, focus on what it is that um, I could do to uh, uh, help uh, others and, 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 and perhaps uh, overcome barriers. Um, that's really the best way uh, to say it. And, uh, before I left um, high school, uh, I started to tutor other immigrant families um, that came in in um, who were having trouble learning English. Um, and, and this turned out to be one of the most rewarding, um, I guess, extracurricular activities for me because I remembered how I struggled uh, the first year or two. And, and to be able to give back was uh, was a great opportunity. And, and, and in many ways, this has been the overarching consideration um, for me. So when I was in college, when I was at... At Princeton, you know, one of uh, the primary objectives for me was to make sure that all of our classmates who were also pre-med um, did well. So we would get together to make sure everybody understood chemistry, physics, and, and calculus, whatever it was. And it was really about uh, uh, teamwork. You know, you hear about team science and interprofessional education, all those other concepts that are very fundamental now. Um, but in, in, in retrospect, we were approaching the notion of uh, teamwork uh, pretty early, uh, even back in uh, in college and, and certainly medical school. Uh, I was inspired by a couple of people at, at Princeton. Um, one of them was this guy named Randall Kennedy, who's currently a law professor at Harvard. Um, Randall, Randy was uh, African-American and, and uh, he, he was a senior, and, and he was just brilliant. You know? And he had received some of the um, highest honors that Princeton had to offer. And I said to myself as a freshman, I said, well, if you can do that, you know, I, I, I know I have to thrive. I know I have to excel. And, and the other person who inspired me it was uh, Gary Gibbons. So, uh, so Randy Kennedy was really special. He became a Rhodes Scholar and went off to Yale Law School. Um, but, but the person in my line of interest was uh, Gary Gibbons. And um, Gary was also brilliant and went to Harvard Medical School. He's currently the director of the NHLBI, National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute. So, so I know how to pick my mentors. Um, so, yeah, so, so Gary ended up going to, to Harvard. And, and I was fortunate to uh, follow him there and, and had a, a good career and so forth. And uh, he's always been an inspiration to me. So fast forward to um, Harvard, you know, Princeton went very well, you know, 
so we get to Harvard. And, and at that point, I thought I was going to become an intern. It's by the time my third year came around. Uh, I was all set. I was going to go to the Kennedy School of Government to, to take a year off and get a master's in public policy and eventually do internal medicine. Um, but then towards the end of my uh, rotation in my th third year, it was uh, almost end of April, most important people uh, in my life at HMS uh, um, approached me after a long case. It was, you know, a 10 hour case. Uh, so someone who had esophageal cancer and, um, and Dr. Um, Wilson, Dick Wilson, uh, Richard Wilson, let's call him by his real name. Um, they called him Dick Wilson. He was the chief of surgical oncology at the Brigham. So we're waiting for the elevator and, and he walks up to me and said, you know, Henri, have you considered uh, going into surgery. I think you would have a brilliant career uh, academic, in academic surgery. You'd have a brilliant career in academic surgery. Um, it, it, it's as if that God was talking to me and, and just said, thou shalt do surgery. Mm -hmm. it, it, because I had been struggling. Now, here I had my life all set. In July, I'm supposed to start at the Kennedy School. Um, I've been promised a residency in internal medicine at the Brigham Center, and then I'll get married after this. My wife is going to finish, my fiance will finish law school. So life was set, but I find myself really liking surgery. And, and after that conversation, you know, it probably was an insignificant one for him. Um, I drove, it's 10 o'clock, I drove to my fiance's uh, apartment um, and said, you know what? You can come off the engagement if you want, but I'm going into surgery. She <laughs> uh, said, what? what? And he said, I'm going into surgery. So that, you know, I found my passion. And in and, and this conversation um, with Dick Wilson, well, his, his statement was really validation that um, I could do this and, and I should do it. And, um, and, and truly, the rest is history. He became not just a mentor, but also a sponsor. He, pretty much picked out my rotations for my fourth year, uh, sent me to Cornell to work with um, um, my Sloan Kettering to get exposure to some surgical oncology because at the time, you know, at Harvard Medical School, you think we were brainwashed to believe that big operations only occurred at the Brigham or Mass General, period, in that order. <laughs> um, but when I got to uh, Cornell and Sloan Kettering, I said, oh, my gosh, they do bigger operations there than I'd seen in Boston. And so, so, um, so I ended up going to Cornell um, for general surgery, which turned out to be great. Um, there again, you know, the recurrent theme is you know, finding the right mentor and sponsors. Um, my you know, chair was instrumental in uh, setting me up with um, you know, Dick Simmons, uh, who became my research mentor uh, in Pittsburgh. Um, and uh, I did uh, research in immunology because at the time I felt that I needed to pursue academic surgery. And, and why did I want to do academic surgery? Well, it was simple. Um, when I looked at my professors at Harvard uh, or uh, looked at the composition of the general surgery residency uh, at Cornell, um, often I was the only African-American in that room. Um, and, and I really did not have too many African-American professors, uh, certainly not in the basic sciences at Harvard. Um, so uh, I felt that... Uh, I had been blessed with uh, 
a very solid, um, I guess, background and, and having attended some of the best universities. And it was important for me to, to give back. It was important for me to um, you know, be an inspiration to others. And so, so that's the way I, I approached it. I thought it was a burden. And uh, if anybody could do it, uh, again, I needed to do it. And besides, Gary Gibbons was doing it. Um, so that, that's how it, it all happened. And um, pediatric surgery you know, was the um, field that I selected, and in part because um, the, my overarching desire in life has always been about trying to make the biggest difference possible. And, and when I looked at pediatric surgery, I recognized that this is where I could be most impactful. I mean, if I, if I operated on a newborn with a lethal congenital anomaly, potentially I'm adding 80 to 90 years for that child's life expectancy. Um, this is much better than operating on an 80-year-old with uh, colon cancer because I was still wrestling with surgical oncology because of Dr. Wilson. Um, and, and, and so it became the logical choice for me. And, and, and clearly it's been the most rewarding, um, yeah, I guess, selection I could have made because when you start pursuing something that is more of a hobby, uh, that's your passion, you never work a day in your life. And, and that's really what uh, pediatric surgery has been for me, uh, even though it's a long track, you know, to general surgery plus um, you know, fellowship and, and, and uh, some research. This has been by far uh, the most exciting uh, course and pathway and, and something I would do again without hesitation. So. So how did global surgery tie into all this? I'm sure, you know, it, it harkens back to your upbringing and, and this pathway that you've described, but how did you go from, you know, considering surgical oncology, pediatric surgery and those fields and then diving into your work in global surgery? Right. Yeah, it, it's, it's a, a great question. In, in When you're driven by the desire to make the biggest difference possible, it's always the recurring question, what can I do to uh, improve uh, human suffering um, in where I am, uh, but also uh, in the rest of the world, and, and how can I be most impactful? You know, in many ways, this is why I went to Pittsburgh in the first place, and, but that's also why I left Pittsburgh uh, after a certain time to go to Los Angeles, because... Uh, in, in Pittsburgh, I went there to um, acquire the skills necessary to be as impactful as I could be, um, and rose through the ranks and became the chief and, and felt that I had accomplished as much as I could within that context and, and, and got called to go to Los Angeles and chose to leave my comfort zone in part because I could make a bigger difference serving indigent children in the city of Los Angeles and also be a, an inspiration to them. So that was what motivated me um, to, to do this because it was no longer about the pursuit of excellence. It was really the quest for significance. And, and, and as I looked at where I could be most impactful, it was important for me to think about what was happening in the rest of the world, and you know, I, I mean, certainly Haiti was um, 
that, that was home. That's my native country. And I knew that um, uh, it was plagued with uh, a lot of problems. Uh, I had started to go back um, while I was still a young attending uh, because I thought it was important. Uh, it, it didn't have uh, much when it came to pediatric surgery, so uh, so I started to go back um, on a regular basis, but really <clears throat> just you know a week out of time, once a year, and so forth, and I didn't really have as much control. Um, but fast forward, after the earthquake, um, um, I knew it was... I couldn't just send money or just uh, appear there, do something, and then go back and stop. But but the magnitude of the devastation, misery, and suffering I had witnessed uh, in the uh, two most grueling weeks of my life, uh, which because you know, I arrived on on the scene you know, the day after they opened the uh, airport. Uh, um, you know, which is like four days uh, post, um, four or five days post uh, earthquake. Uh, it, it just told me that I needed to remain engaged to try to uh, improve the healthcare infrastructure um, in that um, area, in part because had there been one, the number of deaths, um, close to 300,000, um, could have been prevented. And the number of people experiencing serious morbidities, including amputations and so forth, uh, again, that would have been um, much less. So um, and that's what it's been and, and for me. And um, I've remained engaged in that, uh, in that aspect because it's an obligation uh, to whom much is given, much is required. And um, that's why I will continue to go back and no matter what the cost is, no matter how difficult it is. So, so you know, the key thing you brought up here is building that infrastructure in Haiti. And this is global surgery as a whole. The discussion is, you know, we should... It, Yes, it's helpful to take that one-week trip, those mis medical mission trips, but until you build that infrastructure in the local areas so that they can help themselves, um, you're not making a big difference. And so can you talk a little bit more about that and even how I know you're from Haiti, but it still must have been difficult to kind of engage with them to um, develop these sorts of solutions? Well, I think that's that's an excellent, an excellent point. I think... Um, I don't want to discount the importance of what I call uh, medical tourism uh, versus building infrastructure. Um, there is something to be said when somebody is suffering right after uh, some kind of a natural disaster and, and we're able to go and, and save a life or two and, and make a difference even in, in one person's life. So, so that does matter. Um, but if we're going to be most impactful, uh, then it's about looking at how we can make the biggest difference um, by focusing on increasing um, the local capacity, local workforce capacity. We can do a whole lot more to improve the conditions of a, a particular society, a particular people, and 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 that's really the primary. That ought to be the primary focus, especially of major. Uh, surgical organizations uh, and 
and as part of the American College of Surgeons, we've recognized that um, we have an obligation as the largest and such uh, academic surgical organization to uh, help uh, build the necessary infrastructure, especially in disenfranchised communities and um, in um, low-middle-income countries, um, to try to uh, address these heavy surgical burden um, that exists in, in, in these uh, places where they just don't have access to care and they don't have enough personnel to actually meet these surgical needs um, of their communities. Our initial approach has been to focus on sub-Saharan Africa, um, where in conjunction with uh, Hawassa University, for instance, um, we've established a hub. And, and the idea here is to try to increase the number of trainees who are going to be able to um, meet the surgical needs of uh, the you know, people in in in, in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, that that that's the key uh, key objective. So here, the American College of Surgeons is able to um, partner with a number of departments of surgery to. Uh, ensure that there's going to be continuity, that you're going to always have a number of um, you know, board-certified surgeons uh, who are going to be in one location. And this way, there is an opportunity to increase the number of trainees um, and thus increase the surgical workforce capacity in, in sub-Saharan Africa. And then the idea is to serve the entire region. I think if that model ends up being successful, as we anticipate it will be, um, then it can be replicated in other uh, parts, in other little uh, low middle income um, countries, again, to help address uh, the, um, the surgical burden uh, of diseases, the unmet need. Yeah. Yeah, and among that unmet need and that surgical burden uh, to highlight in a remarkable case, you separated the first pair of conjoint twins in, in Haiti. How did you set this up? What was the surgery like? I, how many of these cases had you done before, and did that impact your decision on, on how you proceeded in Haiti? Wow. Um, every time I think back about this, I think I say I must have been crazy. Uh, I mean, I, I think it's... It, it, this is this was a very unusual case, and um, I had been going back to Haiti pretty much on a consistent basis, at least four or five times a year, and and really doing most of the complex pediatric surgical cases. Um, and and my goal was just to make sure that um, you know, newborn infants, especially with uh, congenital anomalies that uh, are very survivable in the U.S., were not going to continue dying and, and, and truly what I witnessed um, especially um, years after I started going there on, on a very very frequent basis and, and handling most of the complex surgical anomalies it was almost like we were talking about Darwinism uh, at its best it is survival of the fittest children who were born with um, problems that are managed routinely in the U.S. would end up dying um, in Haiti because uh, there was no um, way to give them surgical nutrition, uh, no parental nutrition. So if you have gastroschisis, if you have uh, you know, intestinal atresia with, with, um, with short gut, you're just not going to make it. And, and, and other problems, you know, some um, tea, you know, some tracheoesophageal fistulas and, 
esophageal, with esophageal atresia. So if you had um, other routine problems, uh, you just didn't make it. Um, and, 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 but I was determined to try to address those. And, and working with some of the local surgeons, we uh, started to make some uh, inroads because we, I would teach them how to handle some of those surgical emergencies. Um, you know, children with um, empyemas would die. Um, and you know, so I was able to get uh, call stores to donate uh, minimum invasive uh, surgery tower and, and teach them how to do a VAT. And, yeah, and these kids are not surviving routinely and they're doing, the surgeons are doing VATs. And, and I mean, you realize how simple an intervention it was and, and how small an investment. Um, but until we started doing this, people were dying unnecessarily. Um, so fast forward, this was a case... Um, that occurred uh, in the Central Plateau where Paul Farmer built uh, a, a hospital. Paul and I had been uh, collaborating in many ways and is a good friend, one of my, uh, really one of my idols. And so the chief of staff over there uh, called me to tell me that they had this mother who was carrying a triplet pregnancy and, and it looks like uh, there were two uh, that were conjoined um, probably around the abdomen so I said what can I do <laughs> so we talked about uh, some of the con key considerations we need to obviously make sure that she doesn't go into premature labor and so on and so forth and um and in the meantime try to find some place you know that will take her in the u.s and, um but uh, despite all of our attempts there was no other place that was willing to accept her because uh, most of the hospitals were I guess uh, they were suffering from, uh, I guess, donor fatigue. They had given a lot of free care. And even my hospital at Children's Los Angeles at the time where I had, you know, we had had several children from Haiti, you know, that I brought and operated on and others had also managed. So they did not want to spend a million dollars potentially in this type of a case. And, and, and so we found ourselves at late September, um, wondering what to do. And, 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 and Paul, uh, farmer said, you know, my brother in Creole, in good Creole, I said, my, what, my brother, what can you do for us? And we said, well, you know, if we have to, we're going to do it. We just can't let those kids die. Um, and so in consulted with my team in LA, Iris Obstetrics, uh, also one of my partners, Jim Stein, who had probably the world's largest experience in terms of doing conjoined twins. We had done one during my tenure um, at Los Angeles, um, and he'd been the lead. And so we talked about it, and we reviewed the ultrasound and decided, you know, we can do this. And got my anesthesiologist involved, no problem. Um, so we told Paul, you know, we can put together a team to to organize this. And uh, so fortunately, they were able to uh, extend the pregnancy to the point where they delivered uh, um, after 36 weeks because they were, the lungs were mature at this point because if those... If they had, if she had gone into premature labor, they would, would die. Would have been cast in, in Haiti. So, anyway, so flew down there and 
um, you know, 13 days or so after the kids were born to assess their viability and, and, and it looked like uh, there was no other major anomaly that we could tell uh, given the limited equipment we had because uh, I couldn't even get a CT scan so we had to use a, a portable ultrasound machine to assess um, you know, the uh, anatomy and, and so this was an omphalopagus so they were connected at the level of the uh, lower thorax and abdomen and shared the liver so we discussed it uh, with my team in LA and said you know we can do this you know, as long as we could uh, make sure that uh, the, there was no major infection, they were progressing. And um, and so I traveled essentially every month to monitor their progress and had regular <laughs> clinical rounds with the team in Haiti. And we had Google documents uh, monitoring daily weights. And you know, just like we would normally do for our uh, patients uh, in uh, on, on the regular wards at Children's Hospital of Los Angeles. So, you know, I had a very good idea all along about how they were progressing. Um, and then we decided um, you know, by the time they were three months old that um, we would do the separation just around the six months, uh, at, around six months of age. Um, yeah, probably one of the interesting things for me, I always like to talk about this because when I first went to Haiti, to see, to examine the uh, the conjuring twins, the mother had refused to associate, had refused to uh, hold them because the folklore was such that, listen, just let them die. Yeah, you have one good one, just let this go. They are cursed. Um, but then after we brought hope and said, you know, we can fix this and you would have three healthy girls instead of just one, um, she said, really? And I said, absolutely. So by the time I returned the first time, uh, the, the second time, uh, three and a half weeks later, I mean, she was in complete control of their care. And, and in fact, she said, doc, these nurses don't know what they're doing. They're trying to kill my kids. <laughs> uh, so it was great to see because that's important. Um, you have to have um, parental uh, investment uh, in something like this. And, and so, so fast forward, um, after we made the decision, you know, I had weekly, um, um, yes, uh, teleconferences to coordinate everything that was going to be done because separating conjuring twins is more by dotting the I's and the J's and crossing the T's. It's all details. Um, and it was important uh, for everybody to understand what their roles were. So we uh, put together a team of physicians and allied health professionals from Haiti, uh, in addition to the team from L.A. We would talk just about every week, uh, monitor the progress of the children. And then uh, I went to Mille Ballet. I went to that place about uh, three weeks before uh, to make sure everything was in order to operate there myself. Um, just to try to anticipate the, kink, the kinks, anesthesiologists also went down there. Um, and then we, the team showed up, um, I think it was about 22nd of May and, uh, yeah, I guess it's almost the anniversary. Uh, and so we went through a dry run the night before to make sure everybody understood what they were going to do and also to make sure that the, the team, uh, you know, 
Haitian physicians, nurses, anesthesiologists were fully integrated. We found a team, and um, and then the next day we went and and showed up in the operating room, and it was like uh, you know beautiful symphony orchestra that was performing because uh, um, there had been great preparation and everything went smoothly. Uh, I never envisioned that anything would go wrong um, because it's always, you know, the motto is there's no satisfactory substitute for excellence and, and, and we'd prepared and so forth. But I must confess, uh, just before I scrubbed, after, the, after they've been intubated and it's time to start, and then doubt showed up for the first time. Um, it occurred to me, suppose one doesn't make it, or suppose they both die. Just think about what that would do to your career. Just think about what all the, all the critics would say. How dare you think that you could pull this off in a resource-poor environment? Uh, you must have been just derelict. A anyway, so so all I mean that veil just came down, and um, unfortunately, it happened then because there was no turning back. I said, I said, oh well, let's just go do it. Uh, but 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 that was the f I mean the I mean literally you could feel my temperature rising. I felt like the my blood was boiling. Um, um, but you know what? Uh, preparation and focus on excellence is really what it's all about. We'd anticipated all the potential complications, um, including shunting. So right before we started, one of the babies uh, became profoundly tachycardic, whereas the other one was fine. So you started giving blood to the one who was tachycardic, nothing happened. Blood, heart rate cells go up to 180, 200, the other one is 120. So they say, ha, it's, she's shunting. So gotta separate that liver as quickly as possible. Uh, so that created a little bit more angst, but we just did it. And then, Everything was straightforward. So, so it, it, most daring thing I've ever done, but also most rewarding because by the third day, those babies be, were behaving like they had an appendectomy. They were basically ready to come out of the ICU. They were eating. Uh, it was just remarkable. So, yeah. That's an incredible story. So you've basically commented on a few themes. What I gathered from everything you've told us so far is mentorship, sponsorship, um, uh, collaborating, preparation, and then the biggest theme in your life sounds like making an impact. And with that said, um, the I guess our kind of final question for you is one of the hats you wear is Dean of the School of Medicine. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't know too many surgeons who take on that role, let alone pediatric surgeons. And I, I have a feeling this has to do with making the greatest impact, but um, why did you choose to take on that role as opposed to like a general surgery residency director, a fellowship director? Why um, be Dean of School of Medicine? Yeah. 
it's a great question. It's, it, it really goes back to how can I make the biggest difference? Um, and uh, I had been running a department of surgery of some sort now for you know, almost 18 years. Uh, if you can't, my time as a chief of surgery in Pittsburgh and then also uh, in Los Angeles. And um, I had mentored a number of people who have gone into academic surgery and who are making a difference. And um, at this point, for me, the challenge was um, to take a place like the University of Miami. I never really aspired to be a dean, but um, when they came calling, I looked at what uh, the University of Miami had to offer. This is uh, a strategically located institution right there at the gateway to Latin America uh, and the Caribbean. Um, I also felt that this is a place that had played an important role um, in Haiti and other countries in Latin America, especially after natural disasters, um, to help lead this institution and help forge the priorities and, um, and, and become even more impactful. You know, you know, it was just an opportunity I just couldn't pass up. And, and I also believe that the, the vision of the president of um, UM, uh, Julio Frank, uh, resonated well with my personal overarching priorities. And uh, he wants the University of Miami to be the hemispheric, the excellent, the relevant, uh, and exemplary university. And, and those are themes that just hit home. Um, because if we are the hemispheric university and if we are truly relevant, we are addressing some of the critical problems and developmental problems, healthcare problems um, that affect not just the people of South Florida and the state of Florida in general, but also our neighboring countries. And, and so for anybody who's interested in global health who really feels that uh, we have a responsibility beyond our shores uh, to improve um, human suffering in general, uh, to alleviate uh, uh, the conditions of people um, throughout the world, and that was uh, that. That's just a dream job, and, and this is really what it is for me. Um, and to the extent that you're always following your passion, you're not really working. Um, so you're just pursuing your hobby, and, and it's been a fantastic uh, transition, and one that I continue, one that I, I hope to continue to do uh, um, as long as um, I breathe. So. Wow, that is awesome. Uh, so, sir, we're going to close out this podcast with the final five, just mm -hmm. five questions that can, uh, you know, hone in on just personal points. Let our guests, uh, let our listeners come to know you a little bit more personally. Mm -hmm. So, first, what book are you currently reading and what is your all-time favorite? Probably the one that resonates the most right now is um, Leadership and Self-Deception. Um, it really is an important concept for any leader uh, to understand uh, his or her role uh, in leading and also in um, framing the narrative. There is a tendency for us to ascribe um, 
events or occurrences uh, to others without necessarily uh, looking critically at what we may have contributed to that. If you're going to be an effective leader, if you're going to be truly a selfless leader, then it 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 starts with uh, significant introspective analysis to understand what could you have done differently uh, to prevent this particular occurrence or what was the part that you contributed to it knowingly or unknowingly and how do you prevent it? I mean, I think those are very, very basic and very strong guiding principles. So, Great. We hear that you're a concert grade pianist and uh, that so you clearly have some love for music. Um, so we were wondering if you listen to music in the operating room and if so, what could we find on your iPod? I, I, I love music. I'm not a pianist. I, I love the guitar. I can't play that, you know, maybe just play a few songs here and there. But um, having said that, uh, I always operate to music um, and it varies. I have pretty eclectic taste. Um, when I'm starting a case, depending on how intricate it is, if it's going to be a livery section, then then we're really um, listening to, you know, at, at very soft music, you know, smooth jazz at the most. Uh, um, something that you can hear in the background, you know, relaxes you a little bit and makes you think that you just relaxing at home, um, although you know that's far from the truth. <laughs> but having said that, once uh, I'm beyond the critical parts of the operation, then we want something more upbeat. And it can be anything from um, some uh, Motown and uh, you know, reggae, compa, you know, soca. It, it just, you know, I call it closing music. Um, so it clearly much more upbeat. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, but when I'm working at my desk, when I'm in my office, you only hear classical music. Um, that's the only thing that I work to. Uh, it, it's really, really, um, interesting, but I will not listen to classical music when I'm operating. Um, it just doesn't work. Uh, but certainly when I'm working, um, in my office, um, writing an NIH grant that's it's all about the classical music so that's great so let's take this to sports and activities uh, if you were to compete in the Olympics winter or summer doesn't have to be a sport that you actually play what event would you love to do oh my that's a tough one um, you know I that's since I I played volleyball. Oh, I tried to play volleyball when I was in in, in college. That that's probably if I had my druthers, that's the one sport I would love to be able to uh, play and, and and be good at. Uh, unfortunately, things have changed. Uh, back in the days, um, and someone like. Uh, someone my height could still play, and uh, and I I could jump a little bit. Uh, well, I could jump a whole lot higher than I can now, but um, but now people playing volleyball, you know, you got to be at least six something, you know, six six, and you know, it's like playing basketball, and and so I I could I don't have a prayer, yeah, 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 but but I still love the sport. Awesome. So you've traveled a lot. Obviously, you've done global work, but uh, I'm wondering about your favorite vacation spot. 
I, probably, probably Barbados, although we haven't been there in, in a long time, but, um, that has to be one, that was one of the best vacations that my wife and I uh, had. And, um, but, you know, also. To close things out, if not medicine, what would you be doing? I would be advocating. Um, I would be most likely in politics, uh, some form of uh, um, position where I was out there um, uh, drumming support to improve um, human suffering. I am pretty convinced and it's always been one of my uh, passions from the time I was, I don't know, in a high school, college, and which is why I thought I was just going to go to the Kennedy School and get a master's in public policy because I really wanted to um, affect health policy. Um, so I would be doing that. Great. Thank you very much for joining us today. I'm sure our listeners are going to feel the impact of your work. And if they want to follow you, they can find you on Twitter at Henri Ford MD. Thank you very much. Thank you. Until next time, dominate the day. 